0: This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now.
1: This is the London Fintech podcast, brought to you in association with Smart and the enlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Jay Bregman, CEO and co-founder of Thimble, to discuss the ongoing trend within InsurTech to slice, dice and sell insurance in ever smaller pieces. Something in passing they've done to the tune of $175 billion of coverage, which sounds like quite a lot to me. Furthermore, they were recently named as Fast Companies 2021 Number one most innovative small and mighty company, which is impressive. We'll have a short look at the background to this topic. Although we heard last year from Freddie McNamara, founder of Cover in LFP 158, who captured a huge chunk of UK short-term, one hour and upwards, car insurance markets. So this whole slice and dice in smaller pieces isn't new. One sector which Jay tells me is underserved is small businesses. And that's before, of course, we look at the governments finding reasons to crucify small businesses worldwide, but not, of course, crucify big businesses. I've never read a logical explanation for that in passing. Small business insurance, general liability, professional liability insurance, and so forth, can be hard to acquire at commercially sensible terms, apparently. And thus, many contractors or home repair folk end up having to give up on potential business as a result. Thus, we have yet another example that the apparently dull and abstract world of finance or insurance is actually the oil in an engine without which an engine cannot function. Or put another way, fixing this particular problem is a great way of increasing economic growth and improving the lives of both suppliers and consumers. What's not to like? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. morning, Jay. Thank you for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure to be
2: here. Thank you very much
1: for having me. Yes. And in terms of a pleasure, it is, I believe, more of a pleasure to be where you are than where I am in that I'm in London, which had many centuries success in increasing liberty and then has had a tremendously successful one year reversing 800 years of progress, which is a bit unfortunate. However, in New York, we had a guest a little while ago and um, the guest had done this exotic thing called going to a restaurant and and stuff like that. So uh, that sounds very good. Although having said that, I read some New York Post article today, I think, from LinkedIn, just killing a bit of time over a coffee, which was saying that actually New York's busy um, trying to sort of handicap itself with taxes higher than California and other sort of crazy things. So so where is New York at the moment and where is it going on, on the spectrum of my gosh we all of the listeners in the in the UK wish we were there cuz we could go to restaurants too on the other hand what is going even worse than california
2: well look it, it's definitely opening up you know it, across multiple vectors everything from arts and entertainment to restaurants you know it's actually opening up a little bit faster uh, than then we can figure out how to to go to go back to all of these activities that we uh, once did, and many of them are so fully booked uh, that it's hard to go into museums or other places. But, you know, it's it's definitely heading in the right direction, considering where it was uh, before. Uh, and I think that that is something that won't stop. You know, we also have a, a, a big interest in New York as Thimble because we are actually in the final stages of getting a law change which is prohibiting our policies from being sold in the state. And so that's also a kind of an unexpected benefit that the situation that has happened uh, has made it ironically a little bit easier for new legislation to get across, particularly stuff that really helps out these small businesses that are all restarting and trying to get back on their feet.
1: Yes, it's interesting. I mean, not having lived in America, but having done business in America, it's uh... It's kind of a double-edged sword in that, on the one hand, you have competition between the states, a bit like they do in Switzerland, funny enough. in Switzerland's lot smaller. And from this side, it's very good that you do. So the likes of Florida and Texas go, "I'll oh, forget it," and you know, then all the sort of fancies of the world come out and say that, that every Floridan and Texan will be dead by the end of the week, and, and actually they're not, and it goes on fine. And and then other states are quite enthused about sort of uh, winding stuff up but equally when it comes to banking and and regulation you've got the state regulation the federal regulation and the local regulation so you know that in itself can be more of a challenge and and more time consuming but I guess in this world of duality everything has two sides but talking of two sides and two sides of the pond and going back to your career journey and all that kind of stuff you're not entirely unfamiliar with the disunited kingdom as we are now but we were probably united kingdom at the time with the united kingdom yourself, having, for your sins, spent quite some time over here.
2: Yeah, so I I spent uh, 12 years living in London, all over the place, uh, working my way uh, around the city, uh, living in different parts, uh, you know, everything from the Caledonian Road to Notting Hill.
1: Which was your favourite part? Let me guess, the Caledonian Road, it was the smartest, chicest.
2: (laughs) What I found was that I would move out of a place just as it started to become chic and and interesting and up and coming. (laughs) I moved out of the Caledonian Road when they were building King's Cross, you know, the station extensions, and I moved out just before they opened uh, and so I had the experience of it being a, a pre-cool um, place uh, to live. And then, then I lived in Angel, very similar story, and Notting Hill. And maybe I was a little bit late on that one, you know. But, you it, know, it was, it, it was a, a great experience. London's really an interesting collection of these little neighbourhoods, which a lot of people don't realise.
1: Yes, it was. I, I went to London recently, being just outside it, to go to the dentist. And uh, the city certainly looked like a place where there had been a real pandemic which had wiped out 99% of the population because it was absolutely dead so we're definitely well behind the curve on um, rebooting it but rebooting needs to happen so you've glossed over in terms of your 12 years of London being paid by um, property developers to move out of areas and thereby ah. increase the value you've over some very impressive uh, entrepreneurial creations and successes and, and all that kind of stuff so maybe you'd like to share your career journey as a preamble to, to where you are today
2: so i mean i came over as a student a master's student at the london school of economics and political science doing a master's in communications regulation in media and communications regulation and policy which i knew i wasn't really going to use necessarily in my career but it was an interesting topic a really nice cerebral topic to learn about for a couple of years well i figured out what i wanted to do and then i started a company called eCourier right out of graduate school, which was in 2004, so this is way before the iPhone, and this was the first company really to build handheld computers with GPS that the couriers carried, and you could see where they were You could, as a customer, and we as the, the, the controllers could see where they were, and we built an algorithm to schedule their work, and uh, and so that business was uh, many ups and downs, was ultimately sold to the, the Royal Mail, like the post office in, in the, uh, the U.S., in the good way anyway after that had this idea that we could take some of the learnings and memories from that business to use the iphone to which was just then coming out in 2008 2010 uh, you know to build this network matching cabbies and passengers and that was halo and uh, became extremely popular in london had most of the cabbie population you know on it and then uh, eventually was sold to, to daimler and now Daimler and BMW uh, are, you know, kind of running a joint venture that uh, is called MyTaxi. So I, I've definitely seen a, a bit of uh, interesting entrepreneurial businesses, uh, you know, as well as a little bit of education in the UK.
1: Absolutely. And uh, we'll come on to Thimble, who are clearly doing extremely well as well. I mean, one the small question on that. It's one of these sort of crazy questions about what you've learned. But uh, I was just doing a, a call beforehand advising very new startup about a, a year old and they were facing the, the the archetypal startup problem which i think of as the i don't know bootstrapping or indian rope trick or something like that which is look like we're, we're completely on ground zero on the ground floor at the moment and once we're on the first floor we can actually we've got a few snowflakes and we can start rolling a snowball yeah. but we, we haven't got any snowflakes and it's one of these kind of it's almost a kind of catch-22 but that kind of stage of the company that you've you've been through a number of times i mean uh, do you have any insights with sort of hindsight about how you kind of bootstrap yourself from nothing to being even a tiny snowball? Because once you've got a tiny yeah. snowball, then what you do with it is a bit more straightforward. I mean, how do you make something out of nothing, as it were, at the beginning when there is nothing?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, you just got to keep selling it and selling it and selling it and not be worried about people closing doors in your face. And maybe there are more people in England that will close doors in your face in the U.S., But one of the things that I do remember about England that was uh, unique uh, and I think positive and an advantage over the U.S. is the enterprise investment scheme. So not not to get too much into tax policy, but, you know, there is a way that, that potential angel investors with high capital gains can invest in startups and defray their capital gains in a way that would not be possible in the U.S. system. And so that makes it actually easier for you to get convinced that, first stage investor to write that first 25,000 or 50,000 pound check. So I I did appreciate that. But, you know, other than that, I think it's there are various challenges in the UK that maybe don't exist as much in the U.S. Certainly the the DNA of of, uh, wanting entrepreneurs to succeed and, and, you know, the country being entrepreneurial at its heart, etc., are just very
1: different. Yes, yes, exactly. Good. Okay, so moving on to our uh, main course. The table will be cleared, the starter will be taken away, and we shall move in one to a, a larger knife and a, a larger fork. Having been on this podcast a lot for some time. We've covered a, uh, a number of in- InsurTechs. And as I mentioned, we covered Cover last year, who was slicing and dicing UK short-term car rentals. But maybe given your experience both over here and, and the US and, and perspective on insurance, and also the fact that any global market these days, one needs to know kind of how China's approaching it and how Chinese companies are approaching it. In some places, they're they're well ahead of, of all of us. What would you say at the beginning of 2021 about the global InsurTech World or global insurance world, where it's going or that kind of thing, just to sort of set the scene and before we sort of drill down into um, uh, into the small businesses.
2: I think that insurance is where transportation was in 2010. You know, in 2010, transportation was not considered an attractive investment by VCs. You know. Most of them, and it took many years before Uber being the most highly valued startup in the world that basically people made the connection to the fact that actually this is an old school industry, but it can be upgraded through technology. And I think that, you know, a lot of people felt that insurance was not a globally scalable market, dishomogeneous, um, overly regulated. It, it would be a real challenge for most entrepreneurs to get into. And so wasn't considered very attractive. And I think what has happened in 2020 is you saw enough businesses crack through that in various areas, Lemonade, uh, you know, in the... The kind of uh, home insurance, uh, rental renters insurance area, and then others that basically people started to see insurance as a potential real big money hit, right? Because y- you have an industry that is worth trillions of dollars. It's one of the biggest industries in the world. And actually people have now proven that it is possible to create new customer experiences, navigate the regulation and create global businesses that start to operate in the space. And I think that has really also put the fire under a lot of the, the, the kind of existing legacy insurers who thought they could kind of sit around and not react to any of this. And now it's become clear that actually they have to get involved in some way. And the difference between them and the transportation companies is they have a lot of free cash lying around. So they have the ability to start venture funds, they've been pumping money into startups, into the economy, into startups like Lemonade and like Root and like others. And so, uh, yeah, so, so I think what you're starting to see is, uh, you know, the legitimization of uh, insure tech startups as or insure tech as the future of insurance. And now this trend will start a wave that will go on for many years and will touch probably every aspect of the way insurance is sold around the world.
1: Yes, I think it's well said. And it's a kind of pas de deux as well, a sort of dance for two insofar as certainly in the UK, and I think it must have been similar in the States, which is that InsureTech was much slower to get going than, I don't know, P2P lending or something like that, yeah. for, for the simple reason we touched on many times in the podcast before, which is, going back to your Masters, uh, your time in regulation was probably good grounding. Most of my time in FS was pre-regulation, therefore I regard most of it as completely insane. I, w- I wasn't brought up as a toddler on um, regulation but it's all driven by regulation and and of course you'd form your little insurer tech in 2010 and a regulator would come and sort of beat you around the head and say you're not an insurance company because you don't have 10 billion dollars and a million clients and all that kind of stuff and and all that jazz but then going back to the the padded once you could get reinsurance as a service or insurance as a service and or present yourself as a front end or or something like that then the whole thing has as you say taken off and is there anything do you ever look at i mean it does vary across the markets do you look to china at all and keep an eye on what sort of Interesting yes. developments
2: over there. We have a big connection to China. We actually have part of our engineering team in uh, in China. We keep a very close eye on what's going on there. We think what what you see in China is indicative of where the world is going. So you know, companies like Tencent have applications like WeChat that are used for communications that are mass market, you know, ultra mass market products across many countries, but especially in China. And they have now successfully started to, to sell, to create a brokerage, to sell insurance of various kinds, home insurance, small business insurance, et cetera, through the WeChat app. Uh, so you can actually buy it seamlessly based on the information that, that Tencent knows about you. And we think that that is the ultimate future of where insurance is going. Now, there's, there's a lot of re- reasons why it's challenging to set that up in the U.S. or the U.K. right now. But we think ultimately that's where things will, will start to migrate. And the companies that can sell their product digitally or even set up those brokerages for companies like Tencent will be the ones that win in the market.
1: Let's just stick with this sort of channel, this conduit thing first. And I take your point that there are a number of factors here and we don't want a whole episode on it. But within the context or parameters or restraints or constraints of the UK and US at the moment, what kind of lesson can one take that's actually kind of applicable in the U.S. Or, or, or U.K. today in terms of, look, China's doing this, we can't quite do X at the moment, but we can do a bit of Y and actually we can do Z. What What's the sort of the moral of the story for you as a, as a CEO and a co-founder? So
2: I think the U.K. has a massive advantage and Europe has a massive advantage in this because each country is regulating at a national level and some of them are uh, binding together on an international level, whereas in the United States, insurance which is traced to an archaic Supreme Court decision, is actually regulated independently by each state. And each state has taken time and money to establish an an insurance regulation body with examiners, enforcement, uh, their own rulemaking. So you really have 51 different Regulators to deal with when you want to bring a product to market in the US, and it leads to massive fragmentation. You know, we become very good at that at, at Thimble, and so we, we work very well with the, the regulators. But still, in the UK, all you would have to do is work with the FCA, get to be part of their, their sandbox program, or the programs that they have for, you know, uh, up and coming insurtechs, and convince one entity to allow you to proceed with the project which is a lot easier than trying to educate and convince, you know, 51 separate entities.
1: Yes. And um, so it's the status quo and it's the institutional status quo. Uh, and it's things like, I don't know, mega companies of all sorts spend gazillions on, uh, quotes, lobbying, unquote, uh, in Washington. And, and therefore, it's quite hard to assail the citadel. And um, talking about sort of uh, Europe, which is not doing entirely well, the continent at the moment, the one thing that the U.S., didn't seem to have come up within a number of these areas. I mean, crowdfunding is another example where I, I followed it for sort of a number of years and just shook my head and in the end gave, gave up. I mean, I just didn't know what's happening. I just gave up. It sort of became boring. But uh, it doesn't seem to have this sort of uh, internal passporty type thing, to use a, a funny phrase at the moment, passport, insofar as, oh, yeah, well, look, New York's regulated thimble, so that's portable, <laughs> you know, that's good enough for us because there's some kind of regulatory equivalent. So therefore, yeah, sure, Texas said, well, if New York said you're all right, you're all right. In the same way that the EU, for all of its sins, and it has many, if you're regulated in France, you can pop over to Germany because they've kind of got that a bit sorted. Maybe they haven't completely on insurance, but uh, I don't know the details.
2: That sort of reciprocity doesn't really materially exist. It may exist on a small scale between one or two states, but not any of the large populous states. All of them demand to have control over their own regulatory fabric.
1: Well, I guess it's another one of these things which it cuts both ways insofar as you know if you're a new startup tomorrow it's a right pain however once you work your way through the system and you know via the most economically important states or something like that it's a big barrier to entry to stop others uh, following you so regulation always works that way
2: i think that's absolutely true and you know as evidence to that you know we have been working with new york to actually change the law in some cases where the law was prohibiting the release of our product the way we wanted to release it and had in other states. That's something the regulators and the the legislators have actually been very warm to because a lot of times these laws have been passed many years ago and actually have no meaning or status anymore, but, but they're still on the books. And so, so you're right. So we think of this as an investment, the work we're doing to, to cultivate relationships with regulators and legislatures and to be able to get our educate them and get our filing approved in as many states as possible. In the beginning, it's a one-year or two-year kind of grind. But once you've got it in there, uh, it it is a competitive advantage across not only small other startups, but even the bigger companies like Berkshire Hathaway and others, which would have to go through the same one to two year process to get these filings approved.
1: Yes, and it may be straws in the wind. But one thing I've seen is that the new digital generation of human being coming out of universities or colleges is much more familiar with the digital world, uh, if only as a consumer themselves, um, and therefore you're getting a, a new younger generation of regulator who has a different perspective on regulation mm. and, and, you know, who realises that it, for the sake of argument they become a regulator at 21 and retire at 61, that if they spend 40 years dragging their heels, they ain't going to be helping their sort of fellow human beings a, a around them, and, and, and equally they'll have a relatively boring job compared to, okay, so look, we've got a job to do here, we've got this... It's Historic body of regulation. You know, how can we work together? And it just makes it a more interesting job for them. So I think there is a certain amount of, of that. Being optimistic once, for once about regulation. So let's draw down into this small business sector. Then it's a, a great interest of mine how we help um, unlisted companies and, and small businesses of all sorts. And a great source of sorrow over the last year that in the UK we've lost hundreds of thousands of small businesses. But let's not go down that. Rabbit hole. I've moved about that enough, off and on. We are where we are today, and as I said in the intro, it may sound indirect to those people outside finance or insurance. Things like providing insurance in a more accessible fashion it is a great social contribution. I mean, it's almost you're doing a better thing there than if you gave all your all your own personal money away to charity because mm-hmm. the amplification is huge. But let's just talk about historically. So historically, small businesses, and maybe you want to define that because, you know, there's probably, for I know, a trillion small businesses in America. It's a sort of huge yeah. heterogeneous sector. So tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say small businesses and historically the sort of challenges they've had with sort of, should we say, pre-fintech, pre-insurtech insurance industry?
2: I mean, technically, small businesses uh, are defined usually by, you know, as having less than 100 employees, but 100 employees a big business. So, You know, 95% of small businesses have less than four employees. So really, when you look at small businesses, you don't need to look at the bigger small businesses. You you need to look at the one, two, three, four. That gives you most of the market. And look, a lot of these businesses are in the services area. So they're doing work for other people. And, you know, as they start getting going, there are, particularly in America, but, but in the UK, increasingly, they get asked for insurance policies in order to qualify for work. So the example is, you know, let's say that you have somebody who is going to contractor, single man contractor, handyman, uh, that is hired to do work at John Lewis, right? Well, John Lewis is not going to let this guy, you know, just go into the store and start tweaking the lights and, and everything and potentially hitting a pipe and because and it's very it's very logical. Why not? Because if they did that and the guy was not insured. It would be John Lewis's insurance that would have to pay for all the damage and their premiums would go up and they would go up by hundreds of thousands of dollars and it would be a big deal. So businesses have smartly adopted this and a lot of consumers too this idea that, look, I only want to deal with insured suppliers. And so if you come into my shop and you want a job or you you come into my uh, store and you want a job, I will ask you for a certificate of general liability insurance, at least a million dollars, etc. Now, traditionally, that has been such a difficult document to obtain for these small businesses, meaning that basically, they don't even know where to go to get it, the, the brokers don't want to sell it to them because it's too small a policy, they don't qualify because they haven't been in business for enough years. I mean, it's really, it's, it's a huge catch-22 that these guys uh, you know, run into when they try and get their first policy. And so we figured out that that was crazy and that we wanted to figure out a way to change that so that these small businesses could get insurance For particular jobs or months or years or whatever they wanted to uh, but in in a much easier and trusted way so that they could build their business smartly and not have to kind of live in the shadows and refuse these very good plum jobs that would come up when
1: they were prospecting. I see so the opportunities are clear in that there's an underserved market so putting it simplistically quotes all you need to do unquotes is create the right kind of product for these people and then quotes all you need to do is to get it in front of the the people and and they press a button on their iphone or android other phones are available but not many others these days so uh, i would assume being simplistic that uh, uh, creating the product per se isn't very hard you just need an insurance policy written on a postage stamp rather than sort of a 1,000 uh, uh, documents. But it's the same kind of thing. But I would assume that of the two, and I'd be interested to hear if this is not the case, uh, of the two, it's how do you reach, for the sake of argument, 200 million Americans or however many sort of fit into the, the, the demographic? Because I assume it's not too hard to, to craft a policy which lasts for sort of one week for me to go and fix John Lewis's lights around the corner. But how do you let me know that you can do it? It's funny, you would think that. Okay. (laughs) I was thinking that. (laughs) Logic would would
2: say that, but but logic and insurance don't always uh, overlap. You know, the the fact is that insurance policies in America were never meant for small businesses. They were meant for larger businesses that were buying by the year and buying based on the number of employees they had or their payroll or these other big company factors that don't apply to small businesses. They were then tried to be retrofit to small businesses, you know, by changing some of the underwriting. But in reality, they're still annual solutions meant for for big businesses. So the minute that you, you try and change, that paradigm and try and say, well, actually, we want to sell this less than a year, could be a day less than a year, could be, uh, you know, it could be just a 360 days less than a year, could be a month, could be, could be whatever, but we want to sell it in a flexible way. And then we want to, we want to have you be able to pause it when, when you're not using it. This breaks the entire mold of how insurance is conceptualized and regulated. And so it does require a huge shift, and it requires you to go to each state and file new updated policies that that are radically different in many ways, and then to get those policies approved and then start selling those policies to your your insurers. So it it is as much a regulatory challenge as a product challenge, and then you you have a capacity challenge too, which is – You know, in the beginning, it's easier to partner with companies to provide you reinsurance or insurance. I mean, we partner with a wonderful company in the US called Merkel. We're actually very interested in, now that we're growing our solution. They can do, of course, quite a bit, but there are always things that some reinsurers like to do and others don't. And so we're trying to grow that universe of reinsurers that we work with, some of whom may may very well actually come from the U.K., because, of course, this, you know, London, the London market and the Lloyd's market has a lot of really cutting edge companies. But yeah, but but it is it is a solution. The distribution challenge is significant but the infrastructure solution and the product solution has overwhelmed every company that has tried except us pretty much.
1: Interesting, right. I always like to uh, have my simplistic assumptions upended and uh, you've explained very eloquently why that's the case. So having done this sort of refactoring of the product and having done this sort of uh, approaching the regulators and building a portfolio of insurers reinsurers then just briefly then in terms of the distribution challenge how do you reach sort of 200 million people most of whom probably haven't heard of Thimble.
2: Again this is very interesting and somewhat counterintuitive. So we have a great direct solution. So we use all kinds of advertising channels that are kind of intelligently tuned to try and find people who are looking for insurance at that particular time but we also have partners so we work with people like Angie, angi in the us which owns uh, my builder uh, in the uk and they have hundreds of thousands of contractors. And so we have an integration with them where we can advertise on that platform. We have other types of partners in different sectors.
1: So that's kind of a to c solution. Exactly,
2: yeah. And then in addition to that, what is new for us, but we are putting a lot of firepower into, is brokers. Traditional uh, Main Street insurance brokers. The reason is interesting. So if you look at the way insurance is sold in the US, 95% is still sold through traditional brokers only 5% is sold online. Now 5% of a hundred billion or 150 billion is a huge number uh, and it's growing, but it's not growing that fast, right? And the reason why is because when people know that they need insurance, they panic and they call the first insurance person in their Rolodex, their their home insurance broker or their brother who's in insurance or whatever it is. And they try and get somebody on the phone to help them navigate what they expect to be a very painful process. Traditionally, the brokers do not like this small business insurance because it is very very uh, it's a very low premium low commission so maybe $300 per year 10% commission whatever it is not only to place the policy but also to keep up with all the amendments. And remember, a lot of these companies are doing jobs every week to new customers. They're adding customers to their policy every week. So these poor brokers have to go in and, and for 30 bucks a year have to, uh, to to try and accommodate them. Now, in our system, this is all automated, right? So, and and the, the uh, insureds can do it completely self-service. So we give the bro- brokers an opportunity when they get calls that say, hey, I'm a small business. I'm looking for, uh, you know, a policy for for my business. They can say to, to the uh, person who's calling, actually, we've got a great solution for you. I can either send you a link right now and you can sign up, or if you want to give me your details, I can actually sign you up. It'll take you know two minutes, uh, and you'll you'll be off. They've got an app. They've got a uh, you know a website where you can take care of yourself. So that to us is a very interesting model as well, because the brokers are very much like the customers. The brokers are fed up with the current system. They don't want to lose the customer. They want that customer on their books in case they they are going to buy homeowners insurance in the future or car insurance. So they don't want to lose them, but they don't want to go through all the work to set them up in the first place. So we're sort of the bridge between those two things. And again, there's tens of thousands of insurance brokers in America that are writing billions of dollars of business right now. in in small business and some of them may be refusing some of it too which is sad but understandable.
1: That's very interesting. So you're going multi-channel but importantly uh, and I've seen this with a handful of fintechs who have been very successful with it importantly sort of implicit in what you're doing is not some kind of new school attitude to anything that's old school oh brokers yeah they're all sort of part you know oh that's part of the old world and oh, we're innovators and we're going to turn everything upside down and it completely different no you've got a much more broad-minded attitude which is that there are all these conduits out there traditionally this can't flow down these pipelines for the following reasons but if we can do it this way well actually then there are people out there the brokers so it's kind of almost like a b2c to, to b but anyway or, or, you know sorry b2c to c or to c b2b to, to b but mm. you're helping reform existing structures and provide new ways for them to work, which is in itself a a form of meta-innovation rather than just saying, hey, we're a tech firm, we're digital, we'll do an app, we'll do sort of Google and Facebook ads and and that's it because, quotes, we're a tech firm. That can be too much of a sort of a tight shoe, really.
2: The brokers really are a separate class of customer for us. And, you know, we only started this program because we got a lot of inbound from brokers saying, how can I sign up? And we wondered, we asked ourselves why they would want to sign up and we then called them and found out why, you know, what the what the pain was that we were solving. And so, you know, we have over 6,000 brokers signed up in the US and we're just getting started with that. So yeah, look, I mean, I think it is very easy to say, you know, we're gonna be, we're gonna sell only direct, you know, and we're gonna, you know, not, So in any other channel. But but it would be crazy because, you know, if you got willing sellers out there that say that our product, you know, could really improve the way they do business uh, and are looking at it as a kind of SaaS tool, you know, for this particular uh, segment, then why wouldn't we want to, you know, want to empower them as much as we can? Uh, And by the way, get to the customers as well, right? Which is the whole end game.
1: Excellent. Well, I can see why you've done all this sort of premiuming thing in sort of lots and lots of billions of billions and, and why you've been successful just from a, a short conversation. Long may it continue. Well, we'll talk about this sort of future in a, in a second when we update the uh, listeners with what Thimble needs to be even bigger and better and anything you haven't told them yet. But before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and J.P. Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co, UnlistedBoard.com resources to help you stop making your board an engine of growth today. So, Jay, time has flown by. You've covered everything from uh, China to selling selling insurance to somebody fixing lights, which is uh, pretty much a tour de force in a short period of time. Maybe give us a little bit of a... uh, what your feel is for the, um, the, the future of this this market in a, in a few years' time, as well as filling in the listeners on stuff about Thimble that we haven't mentioned, that we ought to mention, and, uh, and what you guys are after to be even bigger and better.
2: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned before that, you know, hundreds of thousands of small businesses had gone bust in, in the U.K., and I'm sure that's true in the U.S. too. But what's also happened is that, you know, the amount of new businesses created, at least in the U.S., is up 40% year on year for 2020 versus 2019 and we expect that trend to continue uh, as people have been you know sort of emancipated from their their jobs and basically are looking to start up new businesses so we think that that is a, a really monumental turning point for small businesses where you have a lot of small businesses being created that are also very modern meaning they, you know they're generally younger um, and they want uh, more modern solutions like Thimble, so we're quite excited about what's going to happen with the recovery in the next couple of years. What we want for for Thimble, certainly anyone that wants to purchase a policy, Thimble.com or search Thimble on the App Store, Thimble.com/slash/broker if you're an insurance broker, but also you know if, if anybody is is out there that is representing a uh, reinsurer, uh, you know we would always love to to start conversations with leading reinsurers as we go into more territories and expand our lines of business on this platform. So you can email me at j at thimble.com.
1: And roughly how many staff members are you at the moment?
2: We're about 30.
1: And which markets are you, you covering and what are your uh, plans going forward for covering more? So we cover 48 states in the US, general
2: liability, professional liability, Uh, This year we'll be building a uh, business owner's policy, which is commercial property, as well as workers' comp. And uh, so we do about 200 types of businesses, which sounds like a lot, but there are actually closer to 1,000 types of businesses that we could be doing, that we would like to be doing with the right partners.
1: Excellent. And do you have any plans to um, invade uh, Europe, China, the rest of the world?
2: Yeah, I was was hoping that that you would ask that. We have looked at it. The issue really is that you know, forty percent of the property and ca- casualty premium in the in the world is in the United States. Wow. So it's a very consolidated
1: market. As opposed to, for example, it's on the top of something like less than five percent of the global population?
2: Yes. And the reason why, by the way, is it's not only the population, it's it's the legal system. I mean, nowhere but America can you get sued for fifty, a hundred million dollars for Doing something that you could, you know, on a, that you could potentially be doing uh, on an insurance policy, but we are definitely interested, you know, um, medium and long term in getting into the UK probably first, and, and then Europe.
1: Excellent. Well, that's been, uh, say, an excellent exposition of everything from the global situation and China through down to the challenges of doing this in the states through to. This very valuable helping small businesses, and as you say, there's tremendous formation of small businesses as well. I mean, the, the problem we've got is a complete tangent. The problem we have got in the UK, as you will know, which is um, we're all obsessed with pubs, and, and that sector has been totally crucified. So I think you know the, the new businesses to go around buying bankrupt pubs and, and, and fix those. It's a very sectoral thing. I mean, there, there are small yeah. businesses um, being created, but the hospitality and travel and and, and and stuff like that. My ski company, I think, has gone bust, and uh, than I normally buy from. But anyway, that's all by the by. However, once things calm down, I'm very pleased that the US is actually. leading leading the way uh, in terms of moving on from the crisis slash panicked leaders applicable or something in the middle and getting back to normal Um, and I hope that Europe will start copying the US then there is a, a lot of rebound and entrepreneurs have got a huge role to play in this in terms of creating value, economy, society, life for everyone and you're clearly doing a brilliant job now and I wish you every success in continuing to do a brilliant job going forwards and being even bigger and better than you are today so thank you very much that Jay. I thank you it was a pleasure being here. Thanks for listening if you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and FinTech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today contact me at mike at if you just need one-off advice in these areas via Clarity.fm slash Mike Ballyman We
0: could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Away from the city But with the face is so great City, goodbye. <inaudible> Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance with me.